having a beer over here. Uh, oh my god. What one second? Let me just see. Oh, okay, perfect. We're live. Hi. Hi, Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Wait, what I'm are you drinking? Well. Sparkling What's water. That? Are are you drinking sparkling water? I'm drinking sparkling water and coffee. I'm you know Amazing. I'm it's yeah. 9 a.m. so I'm double teaming. Yeah, totally. I just drink coffee and I'm drinking tea. But anyway. Very nice. Um you're killing it. Okay, let's start with your background. You have an amazing educational background, and then you have worked with amazing people like Peter Thiel. And um, so let's talk about like, you know, and then you are also a child actor. And I was just like, so fascinated by your background. And uh, to start with the show, would you like to talk to uh, talk about like your background to the audience? Sure, sure. So you mentioned my being a child actor. That's something that is, it's it's now, it's far, far in the past. Uh, it's 35 years ago, uh, which is wild to me to say that I can say things like 35 years ago and I was still sentient then. Uh, but um, when I was a kid, I was on a television show called The Wonder Years. I did other uh, shows and TV movies and things as well, um, but that's probably the show that I'm known the best for. And it, I would say that being a, a, a former actor, Mm -hmm. um, actually has a lot of crossover with being a VC. Uh, and that comes from, you know, I've got a lot of empathy for founders. Mm -hmm. uh, being an actor, even a successful actor, means that you're getting rejection, rejected much more often than you're getting, um, you know, a job offers. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's sort of like the, 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 the path of a founder, even though, you know, they're maybe meeting with 40 VCs per round and they know that, 38 of those VCs are going to say no. And maybe 30 of those VCs are going to say no after sort of eating their lunch and reading, you know, and reading their phones during the pitch. That founder has to go to every single meeting with their heart and soul sort of, you know, um, in, you know, front and, and center and, uh, and give it their all. And so I think, you know, having had the experience of being on the other side uh, of the camera, as it were, uh, it, um, it gives me a lot of empathy and, and, and certainly um, lets me know, you know, it gives me empathy and it also makes sure sure that I don't ghost founders, that I am extremely communicative um, and that I don't leave them hanging because that was always the worst. You know, you call your yeah. call your agent, say, hey, that interview went really well. I'm not hearing anything back. What do we, what do we think we're going to hear? So it's uh, it's very similar. Uh, I After acting, um, I decided that was not what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I went to Yale. Uh, I st studied the fall of Rome. That's what I wrote my senior essay on. Uh, mm -hmm. Very, It's very um, hot right now, apparently. I did my mm -hmm. master's thesis, actually, on the fall of Rome as well. And we're talking like late fourth century um, through fifth century, so super late um, in the empire. Uh, and then I decided to come back to Earth uh, of, of this millennia. And um, I went to Harvard Law School uh, and I practiced as a lawyer for eight years, which was a fantastic experience uh, before entering VC. And I'll pause there in case you have any questions or you want to take things in a different direction. Like, totally. I just feel like the first impression I have uh, of you it was like at Charles, like, gathering. And then I kind of feel like you are so warm and then like you are so articulate as well as like, I felt like, you know, just like I feel like you're you make people feel really comfortable and I feel like acting or like just like the energy is like very upbeat in general and then like that's kind of like what you don't get from like you know chatting with a lot of people who just talk about numbers and everything and then looking at your background you you were also like you know you worked in law for many years and I just like would never thought like it was such a contradictory like because you were so warm and then like when you're when when I'm looking at your portfolio and then you invest in some of the most like frontier slash hardcore technology companies and that was so like interesting to me and I want to start with like you know you have um let's like fast forward to like later on you started your Korean venture do you want to talk about that and then like how you kind of encounter uh you know the amazing Peter Thiel and then like how your VC career started. Sure. And first of all, thank you so much. You're very, very kind. Uh, and I think most people who graduate from Harvard Law School and then go on to Wall Street, um, you know, they're probably pretty kind too. Yeah. <laughs> we all get, we get a rap, bad rap. Um, so thank you. I'm happy to pick that up. So after eight years practicing law, um, uh, five and a half were in New York and then two and a half were here in California. I was working for big firms, working for, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Um, it, it, was, it was a great experience. Um, I have nothing bad to say about my legal career. Uh, uh, but towards the end, you sort of feel like, um, in the words of my corporations professor um, in law school, 
you won the pie eating contest and the prize is more pie. Um, in law, I found that the more specialized I got, the less I was learning uh, each day. Um, and so I jumped at the opportunity in 2012 uh, when I was offered the opportunity to join um, a new growth stage venture uh, fund uh, that was backed by Peter Thiel, in which he was a large investor, uh, first as the general counsel, and then I moved over uh, to be on the investment team as well. Uh, and that was a absolutely fantastic opportunity, uh, especially in the early days, the first few years, Peter spent, even though he was technically an LP, um, you know, he spent a lot of time with the team. We were in the same building as Founders Fund, Clarium, his hedge fund, and Teal Capital. And so he would come down and he would have lunch with us about once a month. Uh, and those were exhilarating and slightly scary uh, lunches um, at the beginning because he would just pepper us with questions. Uh, and it was, you know, and it was an incredible learning experience. He would pepper us with questions about what we were looking at and what we were thinking about. Uh, and he would also, you know, tell us what he was thinking about in the market. And I remember, you know, many of his observations that he would say, you know, made a lot of sense and I internalized right away. And others, they didn't sound, they didn't resonate right away, but I kind of marinated over time. And then I saw them play out time and time and time again in, um, you know, in companies that we invested in and companies that we didn't invest in. Uh, and it was just, I mean, sitting down at lunch, you know, on a Friday with Peter Thiel and getting to do that every month, uh, it was just extraordinary. And one other thing I'll say is that he, you know, he's someone who encourages a lifetime of learning in everyone he works with. And he held um, these uh, these talks, they called them Thiel Talks. Uh, <laughs> at, sometimes at Founders Fund, sometimes they had them at our fund, sometimes at, at, at Thiel Capital. And he would bring in just extraordinary people. Um, Condoleezza Rice came in uh, once and, and there would be these interactive discussions with these absolutely extraordinary people. And it was just an incredible opportunity. It reminded me of you know being in college, being in school again, where, yes, you're working hard, but then you're also having these incredible opportunities to spend an hour or two thinking about something else and learning about something else from just the absolute geniuses in the field. And I'll just mention one anecdote um, that was uh, incredibly impactful for me. This was one of the early lunches. You know, I was still solely acting in my capacity as, as a lawyer at this point. I, I wasn't really thinking that much about the investing side, although I pretty quickly moved over. Uh, and Peter was asking everyone around the table, what are the interesting companies that you think we should be investing in? And uh, one young hapless uh, 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 member of the investment team said, I think we should invest in X company because I think it's it's really valuable. And Peter immediately came back and said, you don't invest in you don't make money from investing in valuable companies. You make money from investing in undervalued companies. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember thinking, well, that's that seems like a public equities perspective. This doesn't quite mm -hmm. resonate. This, this, I don't I don't really connect with this statement that he's making right now. Let me think about this. Um, and I'll tell you over the you know, in the last now 11 years since he made that statement in front of me, boy, does it resonate. And boy, do I understand at a very deep meaning what that means. And there, there are really two aspects to investing in undervalued companies. And by the way, I've been talking a long time. If you want to interject or ask a question about something I've already talked about, I can pause or, or I can talk a little bit about how this great truth, um, it sounded like a non uh, venture capital statement to make, but boy, but but it is so it is so resonant um, and it is so true. Um, totally, I feel like this is such a um, interesting perspective because nowadays, like when people are thinking what to invest in, like many people would just buy secondary of OpenAI or something. Like you know, people are trying to get into the hottest companies to, I guess, like brand build or like local shopping per se. And I wonder, um, you know, when it comes to investing, like to you know, help LP to generate wealth. And I wonder what's your thinking framework, um, like, you know, based on this, you know, thesis of like under investing on the value companies sure. and how do you find the undervalued companies? Because they're, um, because from my brief investing background, like I was working in real estate, we invest in like undervalued assets because there's for, for example, a certain location that's amazing, but uh, like because of a certain, um, factor the building was not like hot and like I want uh, so I kind of like think about the same thing in venture like you know to mm -hmm. discover the hidden gem 
um, using your words. Like, and I wonder, like, how would you go about finding these hidden gems? Because if they're so hidden, like, they must be having some sort of like factor that's like on sexy to the general public. I wonder how do you identify what is gonna be valuable in the future? Sure, that that is, a, and that's a great question. And so, and because there are really two aspects to this, you know, calling a company undervalued. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially in, in the private markets, that is where where information uh, is imperfect, and where companies, when we're investing in them, haven't been able to prove themselves yet. So mm-hmm. number one, there's just the plain vanilla. Okay, is this company, you know, this company at five million ARR? Are they seeking a billion dollar valuation? Mm-hmm. Clearly, that company is incredibly overvalued. No one's going to make any mm-hmm. money because this company is sort of priced to perfection and has to grow at this incredible J curve uh, mm-hmm. and can, you know, and keep its margins up um, in, in order just to grow into this valuation. And so anyone investing at this valuation is not going to make money. So there's mm-hmm. that. And there's there's the the there's the the very immediate question of based on the company's earnings and its likely growth, uh, do I think that this company is being priced in this round at a, a level that compensates my investors and me because I'm the largest investor in my fund um, that compensates us for the risk that we're taking by investing in a venture backed company in a startup? So there's that very you know and, and that's just a, okay what valuation are they seeking? Where are they today? What kind of customer traction do they have? What, what are their earnings? What are their margins? Have they figured out how to land and expand? If I use really conservative assumptions around their ability to, you know, expand with new customers, uh, expand with their existing customers, like do the numbers add up? Um, so there's that. But then there's the more interesting piece. And I would say actually the more, even the more critical piece, which is, is this company operating in a space that is so hot right now? Or is this company operating in a space that others would be like, wait, what? I've never heard of that. That's not interesting. Well, that seems like a really stupid product. Well, that doesn't, you know, and and, and, and by the way, maybe the others are right, in which case um, it's not a valuable company. It's never going to be a valuable company and you should stay far away. Um, but if a, co- and if a company is operating in a really hot space, there's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. Competition is what sucks the lifeblood out of an early stage company. Back in my days on Wall Street, I saw mature companies, um, you know, in heavily competitive industries. And those mature companies, I mean, they had incredible capital structures. So they they were okay, but they were fighting tooth and nail and at a constant sprint just to stay alive and maintain their razor thin margins. And they were Mm -hmm. using creative uses of debt in order to stay sort of in the black. That Mm -hmm. is what a mature company does in a highly competitive industry. A startup in a highly competitive industry that's being, you know, pursued by 25 well-funded lookalikes, it's mm-hmm. just never going to get out of the starting gate. Um, and so when I say undervalued, I'm actually more focused on has this founder identified an opportunity that others have dismissed or overlooked or devalued in some way that that means that this founder is not going to face a lot of competition over the next couple of years as they're building out their market position, as they're building a dominant position, because it's the lack of competition. It's the being a monopoly, to, you know, to, for lack of a better word, that allows a founder to have the space and the oxygen to build their company. And so when I think of undervalued, yes, I think about the individual round, but frankly, it would be better to invest in a company at a 15% premium when they're the only company in the space, mm-hmm. um, then to invest in a company that's priced at a super deep discount, that's never going to be able to build a dominant position because there are 25 companies doing the exact same thing. So mm-hmm. when I say undervalued, I am almost more focused on this, the space piece. Um, and, and, you know, and, and not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but defense tech, I think, is a structurally undervalued sector. And it will continue to be so um, for the long haul, because of the, the sort of the structural limitations on the supply of venture capital that can go into that space, and because of the structural limitations on the founders who can build successful companies in the defense tech space, I'm happy to go into that. Uh, in healthcare, so I invest in. I, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. I I run a law VC. We invest in healthcare, um, uh, innovative healthcare, and defense tech companies. Um, companies that are applying the best of Silicon Valley tech to these two incredibly important spaces, uh, because, you know, what do we pray for at night? We pray for the health and the safety of our families. These are the most important things, in, in my view. Um, 
And, you know, in healthcare, healthcare is not necessarily undervalued as a sector. And so it's incredibly important for me to look for those companies, you know, founded by founders who have an idiosyncratic view, who have a unique view, who have had maybe a unique life experience that has allowed them to see an opportunity where others don't. So one of my companies, um, you know, a small company out of San Diego, absolutely brilliant founder, breast cancer survivor, learned through experience that you can actually keep your hair um, during the, you know, the course of chemotherapy if you can chill your scalp. Uh, but the ways of chilling your scalp are like medieval. You're bringing in 80 pounds of dry ice and you're, you hire someone to strap that dry ice to your head every 30 minutes. Um, and she came up with a, 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 an easy to use, much less expensive patient administered solution. Now, when she encountered most VCs, their response was, I've never heard of this. And mm -hmm. so therefore, I don't like it. My response was, I've never heard of this. Tell me more. And mm -hmm. that is the posture that you need to have. I mean, I see... You know, I'm a judge with MedTech Innovator. I'm a mentor for a bunch of different accelerators. I see a lot of companies. I see mm -hmm. a lot of health tech companies. Um, I'm looking for the companies where it's the first thing I think to myself is, I've never heard of this. This is really interesting. Um, let me learn more. And, you know, nine out of 10 of those companies, I still won't invest in. Um, but that's got to be the posture. sort of the. And, and, and then in the defense tech space, and I'm happy to talk more about it, there are very few companies that are going to be able to be successful um, due to all sorts of, you know, ITAR and you know, national security limitations, um, due to limitations around who can invest in defense tech and who can actually found successful defense tech companies. So mm. I think what you just said was like super like interesting. And then I wonder, like you mentioned about like their let's start with defense tech, right? Like. Sure. So can you share more about like how does how does the industry work? Since like most um, VCs I've chatted with are like in B2B SaaS or like the general like consumer tech. So like or marketplace. So but like I wonder um, how does the defense industry make money? Who are they? Are they, sell are they selling something to the government or like how I guess like how does the money flow in the industry? Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, and the interesting thing is. You know, before World War II or, and during through World War II in the space race, Silicon Valley and the defense industry had a great relationship. And there was a lot of innovation going into the defense tech, um, uh, in, into defense tech space. The, you know, what are now um, the established, you know, defense primes, those are those mega companies that have, you know, 10 to $30 billion of new gov government contracts every single year. You know, they're companies that have done wonderful things for this country. And I, you know, and I, I, unlike a lot of tech founders, I don't, or I don't denigrate, you know, Northrop Grumman and Boeing and, you know, and Raytheon and you know, Lockheed. I mean, thank God for them uh, because they did wonderful things at really critical times, uh, winning World War II uh, for the, you know, for our allies, you know, for the allies, that was absolutely critical. So, uh, but unfortunately, after the Cold War, and I'm kind of a history nerd, so so forgive me. But after the Cold War, there was a general view. Uh, we had about 30, you know, big defense contractors who sold directly to the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense had needs. They would communicate that to the defense contracting world and the defense contracting world. These private companies would leap uh, to, um, uh, to meet those needs. There are over 30 of them. Uh, in the early 90s, there was a dinner that's called the Last Supper, uh, and it's very popular to talk about in defense uh, tech circles, um, where the government literally said, basically, world peace is here, uh, and so we're going to significantly reduce our defense spending. And so we think that in order for all the defense contractors to stay alive, you guys should consolidate, because we're only going to really contract with a small handful of you going forward. So there was this massive feeding frenzy where the defense contractors bought each other. And we ended up with a very small number of entrenched monopolists, mega, mega companies, mega primes. Um, and so, and that has actually really stultified innovation. Uh, and the way that today, a lot of defense contracting happens is the defense contractors, you know, again, these mega companies, and I am so grateful that they, you know, for the role that they played in defending democracy and keeping us on top. And every year we have, you know, Fleet Week in San Francisco and the, the Blue Angels fly overhead. And it's so it's so stirring. And it's, it's a reminder of the debt of gratitude that we owe to these companies. Um, but going forward, it can't just be them. 
It can't just be them. Um, so the traditional defense contractors literally wait for the government to tell them what to build. And then they typically, uh, you know, and, and Henry Ford has a great quote, or Henry Ford had a great quote uh, where he talked about, um, you know, how when you wait for your customers to tell you what to build, you're not actually innovating anymore. And he said, if I'd waited for my customers to tell me what they wanted me to build, I would have built faster horses because mm -hmm. the customer has different priorities and has different things that they're working on all day. And a technologist should be the one who's thinking about true innovation. So mm -hmm. you have defense primes who are generally you know, waiting for the government to tell them what to build. And then mm -hmm. generally speaking, the government pays them to develop the prototypes of those products. Um, and then at the end of that prototyping period, the government, if, if they decide to buy the product, uh, the, they're stuck with a, a cost plus contract. Um, that stifles innovation. And, and of course, the incentives are really skewed. If you know that the government is going to pay you cost plus 15% for your product, you know, for the next 10 years, the incentive is that those costs, let's just say the incentives are not to minimize costs, because mm -hmm. that will also minimize the, you know, your profits. Mm. And so it's a really skewed system. Um, what you know, and so and, and, and most defense tech startups are similarly going along that path. They wait for RFPs to be issued by the government. Um, and then they, you know, you know, the slide two of most defense tech decks that I see are companies saying, yeah, I've got this, you know, first phase of an SBIR grant and I'm working on the second phase. And in three years, maybe I'll get phase three. And what you have are these long prototyping um, periods where these startups are living based on a little bit of venture funding and then being drip fed funding by the Department of Defense with the hope that at the end of the three year prototyping period, that maybe they'll get a long term pro uh, a long term contract that will then be cost plus um, nine out of 10 times. They don't get that long term contract. Nine out of 10 times their product ends up in a Pentagon broom closet. And then one out of 10 times, and I might be being generous, maybe it's 99 out of 100 that the program doesn't go forward and one out of 100 that it does, then they're stuck with a cost plus contract structure because the government paid for them to build their prototype. So that's sort of, a, a, that's kind of how things have gone for a long time. Um, you know, Palantir was an early mover. And I should mention, I, I had the opportunity at my former fund, at the Growth Stage Fund, to work very closely with a, a large number of people at Palantir um, on our first uh, financing of, of that company. And that was an incredible experience. I got to spend a lot of time down in Palo Alto. There were only about 400 people at the company at the time. I spent a lot of time with really good people, sort of just, you know, one level, two levels below the C-suite. And I got a front sort of a front seat view about how they were really changing the government contracting model, how they were actually understanding, you know, what those mission critical um, uh, 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 goals were, what the mission, you know, what the top mission priority problems were that the military was facing. And then on their own dime, quickly building an extremely efficient and extremely powerful tech platform that would solve those problems and then seeking to sell that to the military. And Palantir had a very, very difficult road. In those early days, I would say it was virtually impossible to sell to DOD because what the Department of Defense wanted to do was say, and this is what they did. They said, oh, Palantir, this is a fantastic product. Thank you so much for bringing to our attention that such things were possible. Now we're going to like issue an RFP to our cronies, you know, at the defense primes and let them build something that's not as good for a lot more money. And that actually forced Palantir to sue the government um, 2015, 2016, and they prevailed um, because the government is actually obligated if there's a commercial off-the-shelf product available to buy that product. And then, of course, if you are actually building it on your own dime, you can sell it to the government um, at market rates. And, of course, one of the wonderful things about technology, technology at its best provides greater capabilities at a fraction of the cost. And so it's a win-win, um, particularly software. Uh, the margins can be extremely high, and it can also be an extremely reasonable price for the government. And Palantir really, you know, they were really the frontier uh, company breaking through, you know, breaking through the walls, um, clearing the path uh, for defense tech companies to come behind them. Shockingly, very few companies are following Palantir's model. The ones that I invest in 
are following the Palantir model because it's the model for success. And it's the model that's going to get the best new technology into the hands of the heroes who are defending uh, American democracy and our allies and deterring, hopefully, uh, violence from abroad um, as quickly as possible. Wow, this there's so much information to unpack there. Um, I wonder. I want to make a quick, like, a、uh, quick announcement to avoid any legal issues. So, like, this is not an investment <laughs> advice, and then this this podcast is just for information only. <laughs> We don't take any political stand and、uh, everything, everything. So. Basically, I know you're a lawyer. You you should say whatever I just said, but in a legal <laughs> voice.、Um, so, um, I wonder. So, you like? I think there's so much interesting informations in there because I feel like this is such a sector that people don't really pay attention to. Because、um, I feel like not many people understand the legal system. Like, since you come from like a legal background, that you probably、mm-hmm. understand it a lot more deeper than like you know most other people who are on the surface level. And、um, you mentioned like you're investing in a lot of companies that are kind of the new Palantir per se. And、um, how does that like you know back in time, Palantir sued the government and like. Are these newer companies all going to sue the government, or like how how is this going to work? No, no. Luckily, not. No, Palantir did the hard work,、um, and, and and I'm not necessarily investing in companies that compete with Palantir.、Hmm. Palantir is a fantastic company,、um, and they've really carved out a great space for themselves. But they're you know they can't do it alone. They can't revolutionize and modernize、uh, the United States,、um, you know, intelligence and defense communities all by themselves. There are a lot of other areas that need to get、um, uh, that, that can use technology as well. So、um, you know, in the when when Palantir filed those lawsuits and SpaceX actually filed a similar lawsuit around the same time against the Air Force,、um, the government it sort of seemed like it went kicking and screaming into the new world order. Um, but、uh, now, in the, especially in the last few years, the Department of Defense has been incredibly open-minded and incredibly enthusiastic about embracing the opportunity、uh, that startups present to improve the technology stack that the government is working with.、Uh, and so, and so that that has been a real shift. I mean, we've seen the creation, or I should say, the funding of DIU. Uh, that's the Defense Innovation Unit. I remember years ago we heard about DIUX coming to Silicon Valley. Not much seemed to happen right away,、uh, but today, I mean, there's some incredible people working for DIU, leading DIU,、uh, and they are there. You know, it's a it's a great way to sort of bridge、um, uh, the the language barriers that let's just say that that exist between Department of Defense in Washington D.C. and the tech. In the tech community, there's a great organization.、Um, you know, it's Silicon Valley Defense Group、uh, that's doing incredible work to to bridge that. And so there's a there's been a complete change in terms of the mentality of DoD. DoD is eager to work、uh, with defense tech startups. They're eager to adopt new technology because they're they're really seeing、um, what it's doing for our you know for our our, our troops abroad. Um, in terms of keeping them safe,、uh, and、um, and and also, frankly, the need,、uh, the need that we have because the U.S. military, and again, this is my opinion. I'm this is not the opinion of the show,、um, but the U.S. military has has fallen behind,、um, uh, has fallen fallen behind our, our adversaries, and we're not necessarily as equipped as it would be great if we could be、um, to avoid the next conflict. So、uh, the DoD has been in, in, incredibly supportive,、um, and they are eager. Um, so I don't think that there's there, there's that the the relationship that existed ten years ago between defense tech startups and a skeptical DoD has utterly transformed. And what 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 I'm really looking for in in all of my technology companies really is number one, has this company identified an actual need?、Uh, and this is one of the reasons why it's so difficult for、uh, new defense tech companies to be formed, because. You can imagine, you know, founder who's in innovating in, you know, med tech and in, in, you know, and in, in health tech. Maybe they interview, you know, twenty five different、uh, hospital network leads, and it's, maybe it's hard to get that interview. But the hospital network leads are generally probably pretty happy to talk about what they would like and whether a new product would be useful or not. But if you can imagine how difficult it is to get onto a United States military base and sit down with senior officers and have a frank conversation with them about. What's the biggest vulnerability the United States military faces from your perspective? 
that tech might be able to help with. I mean, those senior officers are trained not to have those kinds of conversations. So there are very few founders who are going to have the access to their, let's call it the customer, uh, to have a frank understanding, a true understanding of what the mission priority problems are that our military needs addressed. And then you have to combine that access with someone with the technology chops to actually build the product. Um, and then someone with a business development uh, acumen to get it sold and to build a great company. That is a vanishingly small population of founders. And so uh, I feel very fortunate uh, that having, you know, having built a network with some of the wonderful people at Palantir, you know, over a decade ago that I have access to and I, I, I get to meet these wonderful founders in the defense tech space who actually, number one, have access to the customer because they have TSSCI clearance, uh, because they have, you know, they've actually served or because that they're very close with people who've served. Uh, they've been in the Department of Defense, they've been in the intelligence community. Uh, and then also people who are, who marry that with the understanding um, that Palantir really innovated of how to pull the levers of government to actually get massive contracts early and not end up in that, uh, in that pathway where your product ends up in a Pentagon broom closet, which is where so many of the defense tech startups are operating today. Wow. Um, there's so much things I don't know about. I don't know. Like, and I wonder when you're thinking about investing in the sector. So it sounds like there's like a really high barrier to entry and only like a few people in the world have like, um, the access to the information as well as like knowing how the system, how to navigate the system. Um, I wonder what does this entail in the tech innovation um, perspective? Like, you know, you mentioned like you would invest in like, it sounds like you're going to invest in like these like high technical mode companies and also have like a high mode to, you know, having access to get to the customer. And I wonder like, you know, I know that you invest in, for example, the hair loss ladies company. And then also there's like a stock for the diabetes monitor mm -hmm. temperature stock. And there is, you also invest in like the Pokemon Go company. So I wonder like how, how do you kind of like look at the technology ecosystem and then like pick the sector that you want to dig deeper? Well, that's a great question. And thank you. And thank you for that. My first fund was generalist. Uh, and, and Niantic is a fantastic company. They've got great tech. I invested in them back in 2019. Uh, and I was very, I felt very fortunate uh, to be given access. I actually invested as an individual. And then um, I shortly had formed my fund after that. And so I transferred the investment into the fund at cost. Um, that was a great opportunity for my investors. Um, I'm not, so there are a handful of companies in my first fund um, that are in fintech or that are in tech in general. Uh, and I decided for my second fund um, to focus exclusively on the two areas that I felt were, frankly, the most important and the most immediate um, uh, in, in, in my view. Um, and that is sort of health and safety. What, you know, when I think about the, the power that technology has uh, to transform an industry, uh, you know, no, you know, no criticism whatsoever for people who use their technical genius um, for, you know, consumer products that others might think are frivolous or, but my view was, what am I going to spend my time doing? And I'm the largest single investor in my first fund. My second fund is significantly larger. I'm not the single largest investor anymore, uh, but I do have 3%. I'm investing 3% um, of that fund, which is a significant GP stake. Where do I want to put my life's work? Where do I want to, you know, put my energies? Well, I want to put my energies into alleviating human suffering and to strengthening um, democracies around the world. And that, you know, and, and, and that sounds like an incredibly elevated thing to do. And, and, and I just feel, you know, humbled and grateful that I can be a very small part that catalyzes companies that are doing the most important work in the world. Alleviating human suffering um, that is something that is absolutely enormous, um, an, an enormous problem here in the United States. We spend four trillion dollars a year on healthcare, and you know, and, and a lot of the a lot of press goes to to biotech companies, and they're doing great work. Life sciences, innovating new cures to diseases, innovating uh, you know complicated new medical procedures using technology. This is all extremely important. That's not what I invest in. 
I'm focused on the fact that hundreds of thousands of people every single year in the United States die or lose their dignity or have incredible unnecessary suffering from disorders and diseases where we know the cures, we know how to treat them, but we're, we're, we're missing these patients due to failures um, in, in patient engagement and communication, in data, in, in logistics, um, in supply chain, uh, things that can be very well, the, things that uh, technology is very well suited to address. And so on the healthcare side, that's what I'm addressing. And you mentioned some wonderful companies in my portfolio. So in addition to, you know, now there is a, you know, 8% of breast cancer patients turn down chemotherapy because they are worried about losing their hair. And it's not about vanity. It's about these are young mothers. These are people who don't want their kids, who don't want their uh, their families to see their, their illness, who are worried about their identity, who are worried about um, creating trauma for those around them, for themselves. Every morning they wake up and they see their disease, um, you know, front and center in the bathroom mirror. So uh, a company that's able to allow people to keep their hair during chemo for a fraction of the price uh, and doing it in an accessible patient administered way that allows it to be available in every infusion center around the country. That's huge. Uh, you mentioned another company, Siren. Diabetic foot ulcers are an enormous scourge in the United States and talk about a space where a lot of VCs don't know a lot about it. Um, but temperature monitoring has been proven time and again to be an early detector of uh, uh, inflammation that leads to diabetic foot ulcers. And if left untreated, 100,000 people every year in the United States have a toe or a foot amputated as a result of complications from diabetic foot ulcers. The, the talented founders of Siren, they, they innovated temperature monitoring thread um, that they weave into socks uh, and that allow people and their podiatrists to get real-time updates on you know, people who are at risk for diabetic foot ulcers for a tiny fraction of the cost of treating one, uh, they can get real-time updates and early warnings. And they just actually put out, Siren just put out a study uh, with just absolutely extraordinary um, uh, uh, results. Uh, and talk about alleviating human suffering. Uh, you know, diabetes is something that is only, this continues to be on the rise in this country. Um, and if we can use technology to help people not suffer in their senior years, not suffer when they're vulnerable, um, we should be doing that. I think it's a moral good to do. Um, and then, of course, on the defense tech side, uh, I take very seriously um, the fact that we, you know, we have fallen behind um, uh, as a military. We, Silicon Valley for decades had been extremely hostile to our own Department of Defense. Um, and so as a result, we've fallen behind. And I am so heartened by, I mean, Peter Thiel has done just incredible work. I mean, with Palantir and then with Anderil, I mean, Matt Grimm and Trey Stevens, um, who were, from, were at Palantir, who helped found Anderil alongside Palmer Lucky and a number of other really talented folks, Brian Singerman at Founders Fund, who, you know, who helped incubate that company. I mean, they've done such incredible work, but they can't do it alone. And so, you know, my, my, it's my privilege, it's my honor to be a very small part of catalyzing the companies that are going to alleviate human suffering, that are going to help support democracy here in the United States and around the world. And again, it's, it's um, you know, there are a lot of important things that we need to tackle. Uh, and these are the two that hit me the hardest, uh, closest to home. And so that's where I'm, that's where I'm spending my time. Wow. Um Again, like I feel like I learned so much. And uh, uh, hi, Sid. Hi, Chantel. Great meeting you guys. Chantel, and that's another great company. Karoo Health. I mean, that's a fantastic company. I've got Warehouse for my second fund. I mean, they're they're an absolutely fantastic company. And when you think about, I mean, cardiovascular health. How are we? You know, that is something that you know we know how to treat. We and it's all about catching it early, and it's all about understanding what a, a patient's actual risk factors are. And if you don't understand what those risk factors are, and, you know, and, and, and if you're not keeping track of it, people can fall through the cracks. And a heart attack is not a big deal if the person is able to receive treatment very quickly. Um, and if they're sort of on a watch list, or if there can be medical interventions that happen when, when those early signs come up. Um, but we're just sort of leaving things to chance and leaving people to their own devices when technology, apply technology like a brilliant company like Carew, and, you know, and, and you're able to save lives and, and you know, and, and save the healthcare system 
a tremendous amount of money and save, you know, human beings a tremendous amount of suffering. It is, and it's, I mean, and talk about a valuable company that's going to get more and more valuable over time. I feel very fortunate to be invested in that company. It's, it's, so it's, it's a wonderful place to be when you can invest in great companies that are, if that you think, okay, if things go as I anticipate, they will. And I've got really solid reasons for believing they are going to do this. Not only am I going to, you know, deliver a very large multiple to my investors and to myself because I'm the largest investor in my in my first fund, but I'm also, you know, we're going to alleviate, alleviate tremendous human suffering and we're going to do great things for the for our troops who are fighting overseas. I mean, my, um, who, you know, who are keeping us safe. My brother, you know, was in the army. Um, he was in the Middle East until in, until very recently. You know, my grandfather's. It's, it's it's something that comes close to home to a lot of folks here in the United States. We've all been touched in one way or another. Uh, and if we can, we should be channeling the best of Silicon Valley tech into these directions. And, you know, being able to buy things online, that's all convenient as well. Um, but maybe spending a little more time focused on the important things and less time on getting clicks and advertising dollars. Wow. Um, I wonder when you were thinking about the healthcare ecosystem, um, I wonder what's your thinking framework and then you mentioned about like these like really interesting projects or really interesting companies that are tackling really specific problems um like on a broader view like where do you see as like the technology innovation as well as like the investing opportunities are and then I wonder what does the investment that you just mentioned fall into those like bigger umbrella well, I think that, you know, there's a lot of a lot being said about, you know, AI and AI tools. And um, there are a lot of folks investing in sort of capabilities companies. Um, I think AI is going to be a really important ingredient. And it already is a very important ingredient um, that allows us to get meaning, meaning faster from large data sets. Uh, and, you know, and so I think that's going to be a critical ingredient. I mean, we, you know, five years ago it was machine learning. Now it's AI. It's, they're, they're all, they're extensions of each other. And frankly, it's, it's the ability to take in more and more data, extract meaning from it, and then have some actionable outcome. And, and that sounds super generic, but that I would say is the, um, that's the driving force between, you know, behind a lot of the companies who are able to deliver better outcomes, whether it's on the healthcare side, whether it's, you know, open source information uh, companies, um, on the defense side. Um, and then, you know, and, and then there is a place for kinetic companies on the defense side and Connecticut, you know, kinetic literally means things that go bang. Um, because if something's coming in, you know, something's inbound and you want to stop it, you can't stop it with software. You got to stop it with something that's actually going to physically uh, encounter it as well. Um, so I think in the defense side, um, you know, on, on the healthcare side, it's, Tools that in very practical ways are allowing that, that fit really well into an existing practitioner's um, uh, work habits. Because when you're asking someone to do things very differently, uh, they're never you're gonna, you know, adoption is gonna be very difficult. So mm. tools that allow you to, you know, help a cardiologist, help a podiatrist, you know, help, you know, help a mental health a, a, a therapist very quickly. Uh, get their job done in more meaningful ways and actually um, uh, tailor the treatment to the patient uh, and, and do that in a way that's not super expensive. I mean, that's really important on the healthcare side. On the defense side, um, you talk a lot about exquisite systems. You know, the Department of Defense's defensive, you know, physical hardware has been extremely expensive, large, exquisite systems, $11 billion, you know, ships, $100 million planes. Um, there's certainly a place for all of that. But um, I think when it comes to the, the hardware piece, it's going to have to be cheaper, faster, better. I mean, cheaper, faster, better. That's sort of the byword for Silicon Valley in general. Uh, and we're going to see that across uh, the defensive space as well. I wonder when it comes to, like, you know, we chat about how the money flow in the defense ecosystem and then how does the money flow in healthcare? So like, let's say if you have this really cheaper, better, faster technology slash product, um, what's your go-to-market strategy with like, like what, how, how does a company fall into the entire 
healthcare ecosystem. Like, do you sell to the doctor and then the doctor sell it to the insurance company, the insurance, not insurance company, but like the doctor sell it to the patient or like, is that like go through, let's say like if something ha like is newly developed, like let's say the um, temperature monitor mm -hmm. for a sock and then like, is that like, are they directly selling to the doctor and the doctor sell to the customer or like, does it fall into like, uh, you have to have some sort of agreement with, uh, um, let's say, like the insurance company. The insurance company will only guarantee, let's say, like the you know five different company in the category, and then like uh, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, terrible answer, but it depends on the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and actually, and, and it and it really you know that's when you want to see that the founder really understands uh, mm -hmm. what the incentives are, um, and oftentimes the incentives. You know, and you want the founder to really understand their industry well. So, for example, one of my companies, they're Florida-based, great company called Brave Health. Um, they are a, you know, a, a virtual mental health um, services company. Uh, and, you know, Snore, there are a hundred of those. But they're, you know, what made them really interesting to me was the fact that they were exclusively selling uh, to Medicaid. They're exclusively exclusively servicing Medicaid patients. And so that is a very different um, market than self-pay. That's a very different market from insurance companies. Um, and what you're, you know, and in healthcare, and you've identified this really well, the user is often very different from the payer. Mm. Uh, and so you need everyone to be on board. And, you know, Medicaid structure, you know, it depends on the reimbursement code. It depends on the sector, but it can actually be an incredibly positive market because Medicaid payers contract with individual states. They essentially bid on, you know, the ability to, to service the Medicaid members in their state. And then they're obligated to spend 85% of the premiums that they receive from the state on medical services for their members. So their incentives are a little different. Uh, than say a commercial insurer. Uh, if uh, you're a tech company and you go to a Medicaid uh, payer, you know, Centene, or, and then you say, hey, I'm going to reduce your costs by a ton. Well, if you reduce that Medicaid payer's costs by an awful lot, that actually hurts them um, because it means that the next time that they don't get, they don't get to, to keep those profits. And the next time that they come around to you know, bid with their state, um, they're probably going to get lower premiums, which means the 15% profit that also has to support all of their GNA, that's general and administrative um, uh, costs, that also goes down. However, they're really concerned about non-compliance fines. If an acute uh, mental health services patient uh, is hospitalized as a result of their bipolar um, or their schizophrenia, uh, and then they don't make it to their seven-day follow-up appointment or their 30-day follow-up appointment, or then they're readmitted to the hospital within a certain period of time, the Medicaid payer gets fined. Um, and so really understanding the incentives of the person who's, you know, of the payer uh, and being able to build your tech product to match those incentives, um, that is, that's the key. So if you're a company and you're, if, if you're a founder and you're coming to me and you're saying, this is going to be self-pay, I need to understand why are patients going to be willing to pay for this and why is it a need to have, not a nice to have? And why is the patient the only one who's incentivized to pay for this? For example, cooler heads, infusion centers, chemo centers are buying this product because it's absolutely essential that they be able to offer scalp cooling because the word is now out that you don't have to lose your hair from chemo. And so why would you go to a chemo center where you're going to lose your hair when you can go to a chemo center where you can keep your hair? Um, and th these chemo centers are very happy to offer this, this service because it's so inexpensive. So mm -hmm. the, the, the founder needs to be able to explain to me very clearly, well, who's paying for this? And why are they the one who's the most incentivized to pay for this? And how am I going to be able to get these folks to continue paying for it? And if you're Medicaid and you're being built into RF, you know, built into RFPs that the Medicaid payer is sending to the state, well, then you're locked in. It's almost like you're, you know, selling to the DOD. It's almost like you're selling to the government itself, even though you're selling to a Medicaid contractor. So it's so it, it depends on the company. Um, but fundamentally, the most important thing is that the founder understands who the, who is going to be paying for this, why they're highly incentivized to pay for it. Um, and why uh, they're going to be incentivized to pay for it in the long term. I'm taking notes. Um, I wonder where would you find the, so like 
I guess like the part, uh, the questions like have two parts, right? Like one part is, so how do you do due diligence when it comes to like understanding how the medical ecosystem work? Like you mentioned about like you know who has incentive to purchase a product. And how do you kind of evaluate the ability of the founder to execute? Because I think you know when the founder come up with like a very specific solution to a problem, maybe they come from like you just mentioned, like one person had to go through these like really painful journey,、uh, go through the pain as a、um, you know customer, and then. Maybe some other people will come from the medical side, which is maybe they have cured this particular disease and found a solution, and but these doesn't translate into a like a thought through business or like execute on like uh, uh, maybe they are not the person to execute on the idea. How do you kind of do due diligence about if the plan works and if the person can execute? Sure, that's a great question. So.、Um, And I'm trying to remember that there, there was a lot in your question. I'm trying to unpack it. So the way I diligence、um, is, I mean, first meet with the founder,、uh, and then I want to talk to. You know, and, and oftentimes I'm introduced to the founder by someone who I know and trust,、uh, who's known and trusted the founder.、Uh, so, for example, one of my great portfolio companies, a company called Vanivar Labs, I was introduced by one of their board members, and a brilliant guy by the name of John Doyle, who used to lead the national security business at Palantir. And so, in that first conversation, you know, he was saying these founders there—they nailed it. They're so good at executing. They absolutely—they figured it out. Here's their background. Here's why they are. Here's why they've been welcomed onto military, 15 military bases, and here's why general officers are willing to tell them about their vulnerabilities and about you know helping them tailor this product so that they're absolutely able to expand like wildfire.、Um, so, a lot of times, you know, it's part of it's the introduction, and who you know. In other cases, it's. Um, you know, I, you, you talk to customers. So a lot of on the healthcare side, in particular, I want to talk to early customers, or I want to talk to early potential customers who are advising these companies.、Um, if there is not a head of, you know, a head of oncology for a large hospital network spoke with me、um, about cooler heads when they were still at the paper engineering stage, and this, this, the head of oncology basically said, "I can't wait for this product to get to market because here are the 18 problems it solves for me." In addition to the, all the problems it solves for for patients,、uh, so I need to see that kind of validation. And if, frankly, if a, if a if a founder hasn't done that kind of work yet, hasn't had built those customer relationships or potential customer relationships, they're not ready for funding. They, you know, a founder should not be, I, I think, raising money from outside investors before they've actually validated that their product that they're going to be able to execute. Um, and that they're going to that that, that they've、um, got customers who are irrationally excited about adopting their product. Product adoption is really hard. There's a lot of friction there. So unless you have really excited customers, they're not going to be able to push things through internally.、Um, and I, I should say, I invested the seed stage in the Series A,、um, and the seed stage is very different today than it was five years ago because now we have this thing called the pre-seed stage,、mm-hmm. um, and the pre-seed stage is now where you know where founders are raising from friends and family, you know, a half million dollars, million dollars to kind of get that first prototype out the door.、Um, To、uh, get some early customer traction,、uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm not there at the earliest idea. I do want to see a little bit of execution. I do want to see、um, some,、uh, you know, some customer、um, enthusiasm, if not actual adoption, because sometimes these products are,、um, you know, they're not able to go on the market yet, particularly on the healthcare side. And you know, and then you listen to the founder's plan, and I'll tell you. Ninety percent of pitches, I think to myself, even if everything this founder told me is, is true, I'm not going to invest. This is not investable.、Um, and then, you know, if you kind of get beyond that, then you start kicking the tires. And I've got a, a, a good network. I've got, you know, engineer, an engineer who、I've, who's helped me kick the tires on some companies. Just make sure does this design actually make sense? Are they going to be able to do it in the, in the time and the space、uh, necessary? Do we think that the costs of their Um, you know the, the costs of the of the various components of this product. Do we think we're going to be able to keep those under control? Do these seem realistic?、Um, I'm pretty smart, but I don't have an engineering background,、uh, and I'm constantly learning. And so it's helpful to have folks who are、um, who, who who've got a lot of technical knowledge to provide a little bit of backup. 
Uh, and then in terms of, you know, understanding the incentives of, of an industry, uh, you know, I represented when I was in my legal career, represented big pharma, I represented, um, you know, major insurance companies, I represented a Medicaid uh, insurance company uh, back in the day. Uh, so I got, the, I had the opportunity to do deep dives back then and really understand those companies. And I also learned, you know, how to do a deep dive in an industry that's new to me. Uh, everything from reading 10Ks of, you know, 10 different public companies that may be operating in the space and really understanding their own risk factors and what their businesses are and what their blind spots are, because they have to disclose all of that. I mean, securities filings, the SEC website is just a wealth of information uh, about, um, you know, companies, op mature companies operating in an industry. Uh, so there, there are a lot of different facets to diligence. Um, but, you know, number one is, um, you know, if I'm introduced by someone who I have a lot of trust, a good trust relationship with, um, that goes a long way. And so that's why having a network um, in the space you're investing in is so critical. And, you know, I've been investing in venture for 12 years now. Uh, you know, networks don't build up overnight. And it's one of those things where I, my advice to anyone who wants to get into venture is develop a deep network in the spaces you want to invest in with founders, uh, with folks just below the C-suite, because in five years, they're going to be all starting, you know, new companies uh, that you may want to be able to invest in. Um, and, th and those companies will be off limits to all the new entrants. Wow. Um, I think you have like shared so many amazing things and like in terms of, okay, um, I know we only have four minutes. I want to, I don't want to start a completely new subject. So let's, um, I want to dig deeper onto, you mentioned about like, I really agree with you on um, like, you know, really start building the network with the people below C-suite and then one day they're going to start a company. And in terms of doing due diligence, you mentioned like the SEC website has a lot of like wealth, like amount of information. I wonder how do you quickly digest like what's important? Because if like, you know, we're talking about like, let's say public filings, that's like, thousands of pages like not thousands but like along along pages but like maybe you're a lawyer so you know where to look on the information or the risk factors it'll be 30 pages of risk factors you can ignore yeah. that <laughs> so i wonder like you know how do you quickly when you were talking about the deep dive mm -hmm. what does that entail like that's an intel uh, is that like your whole week of calendar is you sitting there reading everything on the SEC website or is that like a whole week of you talking to the 55 expert that you know mm -hmm. from your 12 years of experiences? So part of research is being willing to go down rabbit holes on the internet. And mm -hmm. so, yes, there are many, you know, you, um, but when it comes to a 10K, that's the annual report that public companies issue. So if you want to get up to speed on an industry and you know that there are three or four big public companies that are sort of, you know, entrenched, Pull their 10K. You can also pull it from the websites of the companies themselves. You click on the investor relations uh, tab, pull their 10K. You can also pull their S1 if they're a relatively new company. There's about a 10 to 15 page section at the beginning that describes the business. That's the most important part to read. You don't need, and then there'll be 80 pages of risk factors that are all just boilerplate. You don't have to worry about that. There'll be about 10 or 15 pages, like synthetic biology, for example. You know, there are 25 companies that have gone public in the last 10 years in synthetic bio. Um, you know, if you, in that 15 pages, it's written for financial people, by the way. Go through it. There'll be diagrams or pictures. There are great descriptions. That's a great place to, st to, to start. But be willing to go down rabbit holes. Uh, on the internet and, you know, deep work and deep thinking. And if you like to do research, it's super fun. Uh, and then when you do talk to the experts, you'll kind of have what they say will be more meaningful. You'll have a context for it. Um, so that's 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 what my advice would be. I mean, yes, talk to people, but read, 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 read. You'll you know, you're smart. You'll learn. Wow. Thank you so much. We have one minute left. Crystal, where can we find you? Uh, uh, Aloft is Aloft VC is my website. Why is it called Aloft, by the way? Oh, because I'm an inherent optimist about the potential for um, for technology to take us to wonderful places. Uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom. Uh, there's a lot of sort of apocalypse, you know, you know, apocalyptic stories that we tell ourselves about the future. But my view is that, you know, channeled in the right direction, that technology can do wonderful things, alleviate human suffering, bring us to a wonderful place. 
Uh, and so that is what I'm investing for. That is why I invest. I love that. And you're definitely coming back on the show at one point. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. Tell us about like, where can we find you? Sorry. So my website, aloftvc.com. My email address is crystal at aloftvc.com. But you can you can go on my website and um, you can find me there. So I'm not hard to find. I'm in San Francisco. Yeah, amazing. Um, Thank you so much, Crystal, for coming on the show. This is so like such a amazing amount of information to thank you and I feel like I learned so much of like a sector that I absolutely know nothing about and um two sectors that I know absolutely nothing about but thank you so much for your time very kind thank you let me quickly end stream